Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It's a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. I got to change that intro. There's too many hours. The hour, the word hour comes up too often in the intro segment. I have a question for you guys. I want you to join the conversation at one 855 No, it's 855-450-6624. I want to change the program up a little bit. Just a little bit. I, I am always willing to take your tech questions. And those, of course, go to the front of the line. But if you guys tune in for a live discussion, I would like to start getting commentary. I'd like to start getting feedback. If I make a point you don't agree with it, I'd like you to call and let me know about it. Now, you can email the program live at asknoahshow.com. You can call us at one 855 noah But I'd like to have a two-way conversation because I think bringing a second perspective onto the program or a third and a fourth and a fifth perspective would make for a better program. Now, if you disagree with that, if that's not what you'd like to hear in the Ask Noah Show, then let me know. Uh, you can go over to podcast.asknoahshow.com or go to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click on the contact link, choose the Ask Noah Show down from the drop-down menu, and uh, and let me know. Your calls, of course, go to the front of the line. Uh, we're going to go to Eric. Hey, Eric, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah, how's it going? Excellent. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing really well. How can we help? Okay, so I have been peeling myself away from uh, macOS and iOS for the last couple of years, and one of the changes I made recently was building a SSL-encrypted uh, NextCloud instance and installed the calendar and, and task plugins. Uh, but what I found was that they were fairly vanilla plugins, um, so there's, they've got a bunch of pull requests out for, for new features and that kind of thing, but you know the developers actually have to have time to get to those features. So I'm looking for something to help me continue to replace iCloud. Um, I've, I've gotten rid of iCloud Drive with, with the NextCloud file sync, but uh, I need something that will sync between iOS and Linux for, say, my, my calendar, my family's calendar, uh, my to-do list, and um, contacts. How big are your files that you're syncing around? Yeah, if I got rid of the ISOs, I mean, we're talking maybe 12 gigs. Okay, so I got I got a couple of things for you. First of all, be careful using own cloud to sync files around, okay? Because if you get larger files, particularly you, you, I know you do a lot of stuff with, I know you're a podcaster, I know you got video stuff, stuff like that going on. You want to be careful using own cloud for that because they their backend file sync is can be broken if you start using large files, okay? So that's thing one. Thing two is, have you looked at cfile at all? Um, I have looked at cfile. Um, I'm pretty content with NextCloud right now for file syncing. Um, I'm just trying to peel myself away from uh, calendar tasks and contacts on iCloud right now. Okay. Well, um, I take it that you have looked into, I, I take it iCloud is, or excuse me, NextCloud is not doing what you want it to do for calendar syncing? Uh, right. Um, there's there's a few features. The one that jumps into my head the quickest is uh, 
there's no recurring uh, recurring tasks. So things that I have set up to remind me every other day or every week or something, I'd have to manually recreate every every time I, I complete a task. Man, that's crazy, dude. That's I I can't be, I, I'm I'm be honest with you, man. I'm shocked that that's not a thing. That's not a feature that's already there. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, right. The only other solution I can think of for you, the open source solution I can think of for you, is a, is a software platform called Zimbra. Have you ever heard of it? I have not. So Zimbra is a collaboration suite. It is it includes an email server, a web client. It was initially designed by a company called Liquisys, which then changed the name to Zimbra back in 2008. And uh, they have an open source software suite that is designed for syncing email, calendar, contacts, all those kinds of things. They've been doing a lot longer than um, Nextcloud. I think it'd be a great option for you. I might check that out if you have some time. And I, I thank you so much for the call. Uh, Jim is calling from Virginia. Hey, Jim, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Good evening, Noah. Thanks for taking my call. I am, I don't know if I'm upgrading, but at least I'm side grading on the machines at our house from uh, Linux Mint to Ubuntu Mate. And I ran into a problem with one machine recently. Uh, it hadn't ever happened before. Usually when I upgrade, it's been within Linux Mint, and the encrypted file is just, you know, the encrypted drive is just available because I use the same operating system and the same. Uh, Password and same username. Did that on another machine with this Mate, uh, with this Mint to Mate change, and I couldn't unlock the machine. I couldn't unlock the the drive, and so I'm wondering if I missed a step. It was okay because I could back it, uh, restore everything from a backup. That wasn't an issue other than time, but I would like to learn from the mistake and see if there's a way to do it correctly. These are drives that have been set up under EcryptFS just while the sure. op- operating system's installing. Okay. So is there some way to unencrypt to uh, make certain that the encryption that's there can be handled by uh, Linux Mate, um, Ubuntu Mate, I should say? Well, Ubuntu Mate should have all of the necessary tools to decrypt anything that you've encrypted on another Linux system, right? And if you install, mm-hmm. and, and so by def- you sh- this really shouldn't even be an issue. As far as I know, once a drive is encrypted, once a partition, because you don't encrypt drives, we encrypt partitions, but once a drive is right. encrypted, I don't know of a way to unencrypt that partition without deleting that in- partition entirely and then copying the contents of it back onto an unencrypted, new, newly created partition, if that makes sense to you. Mm, yeah, essentially what I had to do last time. Um, even though, to the best of my knowledge, same username, same password, uh, perhaps it was just an upgraded version of the uh, encryption algorithm. I don't know. So uh, other than that, you're saying just there's there's really no way to be absolutely certain when going from Mint to Mate that Mate, uh, I'm sorry, that uh, Mate will be able to see the the drive even though it's got the password and so forth. Well, I'm absolutely certain that if the tools used to encry- to decrypt the drive work on on Linux Mint, they will work on Ubuntu Mate. There's no question in my mind because the encryption tools have nothing to do with the desktop environment, right? So if you have if it and it doesn't matter what you use to encrypt the dr- the the drive, if the code runs on Linux Mint, it's the code is going to run on Ubuntu Mate almost without exception. There might be some weird graphical glitch thing that I'm overlooking, but I can tell you with 99.9% certainty, if it was my data, if it was something that I really cared about, I, would fe- I wouldn't I would bother 
uh, monkeying around with the partition. I would just install Ubuntu Mate and and install the the um, the encryption tools. And let me ask you this: worst case scenario, let's say I'm wrong. Let's say you take this 99% to the bank, and it turns out to be the 1%. Would there be anything wrong with reinstalling a, a Linux Mint to retrieve your data? I'm not saying you'd like to do that. I'm not saying it's a great. I'm not saying it's a great option. But I, there, you, at no point in this discussion do you lose your data, right? Correct. Well, like I say, the last time it was all backed up, so it was just a matter of restoring it to the the partition. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't traumatic. It was just annoying. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I, I wouldn't worry about it. I don't think I don't even think you'll have an annoyance. I don't think you'll even have an inconvenience. I think it's going to work for you right out of the box because there's, I can't think of an encryption tool. I can't think of any tool that would only run on on Linux Mint and not and and not uh, Ubuntu Mate. Okay. Well, I wish I could figure out what I did wrong last time because that didn't work. So I put off doing it on another machine until I could do some more homework and then check with you. I but, hear you. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, thank you. I'll do a little bit more homework, but uh, I'll take one machine where the data are, are, it won't take so much time to restore it and give it a try and see what happens on that. Good luck, sir, and thanks for the call. And one last thing I'll add, a piece of advice you didn't ask for, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Uh, good on you for moving from Linux Mint to Ubuntu Mate. I agree with that decision wholeheartedly. We're going to go to our Mumble Room. You, too, can join the Mumble Room by going, uh, pointing your Mumble client to mumble.jupiterbroadcasting.org. It's a voiceover IP client. gets a little, little bit better audio quality, and there's an ongoing discussion that occurs on and off the air. We go to Iconic Badger from our Mumble Room. Good afternoon. You're on the Ask Noah Show. Hi, Noah. How are you? Hey, man. How's it going? Yeah, pretty good. Thanks. So you are, uh, this is kind of putting the cart before the horse, but we're going to get to a story later on today where a homeless gentleman got a uh, job by standing on a bridge holding up a sign asking for a job. You said, I have something to add to that discussion. So congratulations, you're on the air. (laughs) Thanks. Uh, Yeah, so uh, as you said, there was a guy in the States who uh, was so desperate for an IT job that he decided it would be a good idea to stand with a sign by a, a freeway and he ended up being shared and uh, going viral on social media and lots and lots of big tech companies have offered him jobs but um, I thought it'd be interesting to tell your listeners about what I did um, so uh, I, uh, I've i just turned 30 uh, I currently work for Red Hat as a consultant um, but I originally did a music degree uh, in brass band studies no less in Manchester in England um, Whilst I was there, I got a part-time job with uh, Apple, repairing Macs and iPhones on the Genius Bar. Um, And that was pretty cool as a part-time job. And then I left uni and it turned into a full-time job. And, you know, I stayed there for a little while and um, it it got a bit boring after a little while. Doing, you know, there's only so many times you can reset someone's iCloud password in five minutes and not want to murder them. Um, So uh, I then ended up, discovering Linux in my spare time. Um, what started it all actually was I had a failed 1.5 terabyte hard drive. So I thought, right, how can I how can I prevent this happening again? So I started looking at things like Synologies and I built an Unraid box and quickly discovered that I had a, a bit of a passion for Linux and open source stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, I about four years later, I'd, I'd had enough of, of uh, retail, working in retail. So I ended up um, going and doing an MSc at uh, the University of East Anglia in Norwich. Uh, and 
for me, I think the important thing whilst I was there was sort of looking around at the people around me and trying to figure out where I fitted into that landscape. And you ask yourself that question, how do I make myself stand out? What makes me, what, what can I do that makes me more human to a recruiter that uh, makes my CV stand out that, you know, um, how do you make it so that your strategy is to not just be a name on a list? So I went to the recruitment fairs at the uni and um, ended up getting a job as a, a an intern, as a developer, writing Python. And uh, I really loved that job. It taught me an awful lot of stuff. Um, but I think the reason I got that job wasn't because I was the best developer, because I know for sure that I am not. Um, it was because I went to them and said, hey, you know, this is me. I do this stuff in my spare time. I just started the website linuxserver.io with a few buddies that uh, I'd met on the Unraid forums. Um, and, you know, so I could show them that I had a passion in my spare time that, you know, I, I, I'm I not just in it for the money. I love Linux and, you know, I love technology and I want to always be improving myself. And here's some projects I've got in my spare time. And I actually turned down a job at that point, driving a van around in, uh, South uh, well, East Anglia in England Um fixing computers and it felt really risky to because the, cool. the job the job driving the van paid about double what the internship paid mm-hmm. and i i remember my father telling me oh you're crazy you should take the better paying job and i just i felt like the internship even though it was a short-term pain was going to pay so much dividend long term like and it. turned out turned out to be right um I like that. I like that a lot because I think that's I think that's where people overlook and I think that's where I think that's the tie into this story. That's kind of what I want to talk about this afternoon is the fact that you don't get a job by sitting on monster.com and filling out job applications. You don't get a job by sending out your resume, right? You get a job by getting in there and proving that you're a valuable asset to that company. That sounds like that's what you did and it sounds like it landed you a good job. Yeah, I think so in the end. So I ended up leaving the company that gave me the internship because they made a bad acquisition and had to restructure. Um, And that new company was an hour away. So it was in a place called Cambridge in England. And uh, everybody knows Cambridge, right? So um, and the reason I got that job was because one of the developers from the company I was at had just transferred to that new company. So I've generally found it's not necessarily what you know. I mean, of course, that helps. It's who you know and and how you can build that relationship with uh, the new company before you get there. So, I mean, take how I joined Red Hat, for example. Um, That company in Cambridge, I ended up bringing in OpenShift for them, which was a a Kubernetes enterprise container platform. And I ended up building a really great relationship with, you know, the Red Hat account team and some of the other consultants and sort of, you know, ask them, you know, how do you, you know, dif- how do I differentiate myself? What can I do? And they said, basically, we know who you are. We know what you're good at. We know what you're bad at as well, by the way. Uh, and it's it's a case of, like you say, of just not being an, just a name on a list. You, right. You've got to build those relationships with people. Yep. 100%. And you know, the interesting thing, and I thank you very much for joining the discussion. You can join the discussion too over mobile by pointing your mobile client to mobile.jupiterbroadcasting.org. The, uh, the interesting thing about Red Hat, and I've seen this time and time again, I make it to Red Hat every so often, and one of the things that they're big on is they hire people based on your GitHub 
record. So they'll look back and they look for people that are already celebrities in the community that are already doing good work. And then they say, we'll give you a paycheck to keep doing it. Right. And that's how you get a job at Red Hat. And if you think you're just going to walk in there and say, well, I had a job at the last place and my education is and my job experience. Is, no, uh, at least not at Red Hat. That's not the way to do, they do things. Open phones this hour at 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Harvey calls from Massachusetts. Hey, Harvey, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. How you doing, Noah? Um, I'm calling back for the. I'm calling back first off because uh, you know uh, you gave me some advice a little while ago about gaming on Linux, and you told me you know hey just open, start a virtual machine and get it going in uh, uh, under Linux, and uh, mm-hmm. I actually did that, and it works out really well. Awesome. Um, so thank you for that. I got to um, tell you, man, it makes for uh, way better radio when you call me back and tell me that it works out really well than when you call me and tell me that your computer started on fire and it killed three of your neighbors and your cat died. So that's cool. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> so it's actually working so well that I decided to, you know, uh, bring that, make that project a little bit bigger. So what I want to do is I want to um, make an even bigger gaming machine um, uh, in one part Windows, one part um, Linux, of course, and it's all going to be running on Linux. Um, so I want to uh, use I want to use KDE for a desktop um, on this uh, when when I do this new build in, in about a week or so. But I keep on running into this issue where, you know, whenever I have multiple, multiple desktop, I'm sorry, uh, multiple screens on, uh, on KDE, it just doesn't load right. Or I'll restart the computer and all of a sudden the configuration is completely gone from what I left, left it off um, uh, before. Are you, using, are you using NVIDIA? You know how to, uh, I do have an NVIDIA graphics card, but that, it was not activated. Hmm. When I came across a screen issue when I was using um, uh, the Intel, Intel graphics on my Interesting. Laptop. Interesting. And this was what, ver- what, how did you get to KDE? Is this uh, Kubuntu or this is KDE Neon or what are we using? Kubuntu. Really? The latest version, 1804? 1804. And so that is I, I weird. I downloaded a new ISO because... Well, there was something wrong, and it's, it gave me the same exact issue. But if I run it on a single screen, everything is just perfect. And we got we got t- two screens going on, and those are both. Well, no, wait a second. Now, you're. You, I'm I'm just I'm trying to think through this in my head. So you've got two monitors plugged in, and somehow you've gotten those plugged in with without using the the this the discrete graphics. I have, so I I was testing it out on my laptop. Okay. I um, I have the lid closed and I have two monitors. I have connected two monitors, and whenever I try to gotcha. look it up, you know, just things are completely out of whack and so on. What um, kind of laptop is it? Come across something like that, but yeah, it's a Lenovo. It's a ThinkPad T. I get that exact T number for you, dude. That is that's enough. I, that's all I need to know. That is a weird, weird circumstances. Um, I, I tell you what I know. <clears throat> what I know is that I have uh, five ThinkPads that I've put. Uh, Kubuntu on uh, three of them I am using in USB-C docks which means 95% of the time that they're in use they're connected to dual monitors and I've never seen this issue so that is a really really weird thing what I might try doing I might try just as a troubleshooting step Harvey I, I might try installing mm-hmm. uh, KDE Neon on it and giving that a shot and the, here's why KDE Neon is specifically designed to be the latest and greatest 
experience of KDE. So if it works there, it is possible that the KDE developers have found an issue, they have fixed an issue, and it exists in KDE Neon, but has not yet been propagated to uh, Kubuntu, uh, to the Kubuntu team. Does that make sense to you? That makes perfect sense. I might give that a yeah, shot. Give that... This... Good. Yeah, I had this issue on, on both my uh, both my Lenovo laptops, and, and so I guess... Uh... Trying KDE Neon would probably be the next best step. Give that a shot. Right. Do, do, yeah, give that a shot and do me a favor. Give me a call back. Let me know one way or the other. Either it did work or it didn't, but I'd like to know. That's an interesting issue to keep my eyes on, and I want to keep that on the horizon because that I've not seen that issue before. It's a, it's a weird issue, and more importantly, if you're experiencing that, there's going to be a lot of other people that are experiencing it, particularly if you're having it on two machines. Chase calls from Texas. Hey, Chase, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah, how are you? Um... So here's the deal. I'm in IT. I've been in IT for a long time, so the folks know that. And so I'm their, their, I'm their at-home uh, uh, computer repair guy. Of course. Yep. Um, I've, de- I've decided, you know, I, you know, I, I want to kind of get a team viewer sort of thing going. I was looking at dwservice.net. The only thing that gives me a little bit of trepidation is that I don't find a name behind the, the, the service nor group. And I've, I've tested it out on some Raspberry Pis and what have you, and it works great. But I, w- I wanted to get your feel as to, you know, um, using that to, say, repair my folks, like uh, Windows 10 laptop or, you know, I-, I mean, I would have them run it, not not install it, and uh, because you can do that, and it generates a path- username and password. But I wanted to get a feel, you know, get your uh, opinion on, you know, uh, whether or not that's relatively safe. Sure. As far as, you know, uh, you know security and what have you. Sure. So or if there was another service available. Yeah, there is. And we'll get to that in a second. Um, so f- first of all, who owns uh, DW Service? Uh, it's uh, DW Service. I, I I played with them a while back when I was trying to, when we were looking at different remote solutions. I don't know who owns them. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the parent company is. Um, I just quickly did a who's look up on their website to just see if there was there was anything that was here. And it's, it's all, they have, they have it privacy protected. So uh, there's no way to actually look into all I can tell is that it's registered with two cows, um, which is a great registrar. So, I mean, I guess that's whatever small vote in their favor. Here's why. Here's what I'm not a fan of, of DW service. It, it, to my recollection there, it requires you to broker the connection through their service, right? You can't um, when you sign up for their, it's a service based yeah. room. Yeah, it's a service based remote pro, remote desktop protocol. So basically you sign up for an account with them and they host everything and you just download the cl- the, the client and then you download the the remote access thing and then you're able to get to it. Now the good news is it works on Windows, Linux and Mac OS. So they do support everything under the sun including ARM and uh, and Pine 64. So that's cool. Yeah. However, uh, I'm always a fan of things that are self-hosted or at least that you have the ability to self-host. And so what we've done at Speed Technologies and what I've recommended since the beginning of the show for remote desktops is a program called Simple Help. Now, Simple Help has a variety of different tiers that you can buy into. Um, I think it starts at a couple hundred bucks and then it goes up from there. It's a lifetime thing. So once you buy the software, you own it. There's no, uh, you know, it's not a service-based thing. They do have hosted versions. Altispeed Technology actually provides hosting solutions. So if you wanted it just set up and you just wanted to use it, you would still purchase the Simple Help license, but you would, but we would host all of the infrastructure for you uh, for a low monthly fee. That's that's an option that you have. Um, but you can run it on a DigitalOcean droplet. You can run it. We run ours on an OVH instance for like two ninety nine a month or some ridiculous thing. 
And the nice thing about the simple help service, Chase, is that it the only thing that the server does is broker the connection between the client and the server. So the good part about that is you don't have to worry about can your folks, do they have the firewall configured correctly for VNC to transition? The, you know, you don't have to worry about any of that nonsense. Simple yeah. Help will figure all of that out, does everything through UDP. Now, once the connection is established, it creates an encrypted connection from the local machine to the client machine, and then the connection is direct. So, for example, when I'm doing on-location remotes for the Ask Noah show, I use Simple Help to get back into the studio so that I can control the machines here. And it's, it's real-time enough that I can start the stream, cue the music, all of those things happen fast enough that I, that I can control it. And that's because my connection is going directly from whatever studio I'm broadcasting from that day right in here into, into my studio. It's a really great piece of software. And the other thing is they take Linux support very, very seriously. I have had, uh, because we've been using, we actually, the story behind it is we started using TeamViewer and ran into some issues with TeamViewer, called TeamViewer up, said, I want to try and use this for commercial, for commercial infrastructure. Said, okay. They said, sure. Go ahead and try it for a day, see if it works for you, and then you can buy a license if you want to. I said, great, let's do that. So we tried to use it for a day. We didn't make it through hour number three, and uh, TeamViewer was crapping all over itself and warning us that we were illegally using it and warning us that it wasn't commercial and all this other stuff. And so I called TeamViewer up, and I was very upset. Hey, we have a client. Hey, we're trying to get some work done here. You told us we could try this for 24 hours. We haven't even gotten past hour three, and this whole thing is just this whole thing is, is screwed six ways to Sunday. And they said, yes, sorry about that, but good luck. And that was the end of it. And I, I looked in this and team viewer license, I think was like eight or 900 bucks at the time. Simple help license was 300. We bought the simple help license. It got us through that emergency. And I just haven't turned my back on them since we have run into a couple of issues. There have been a couple of things crop up when, when they switched to Wayland simple help originally didn't work, had a couple of issues when gnome updated. And every time I have tweeted those guys or sent an email in or filled out a support ticket Hey, it doesn't work on this. It doesn't matter. They don't care what desktop distribution you're using. They don't care what desktop environment they're using. They don't care what the problem is. They get it fixed and they get it fixed within like 24 to 48 hours. And I've seen that happen four or five different times. I've also heard of cases where people have reached out to them and said, Hey, you know what? We, I'm a home user. I'm not using it for anything commercial. Can you work with me on, you know, on some things and, and make me a deal? And, and they've been able to work with people and they'll find a solution that fits in your budget. Um, so they're a great company. They're a great company. They really have a lot of respect for Linux and they've done a really good job uh, uh, for us here at AltaSpeed. And I'm saying all of that and they've never given me a dime. I don't have any official relationship with them other than I'm a customer. I just think the world of their product, I think a world of the service, and I think the world of the fact that they take their Linux customers seriously. Okay. All right. Well, I'll look into them. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. And uh, simple help if you're listening. That's uh, I gotta start charging people for paid advertisements on this program. I tell you what, because that, that's again, that's uh, they're not paying me to say any of that. It's just they just really made a fantastic product and a fantastic service. So I, I just have to give credit where credit's due. Open phones this hour, 1-855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Another plug for our Mumble Room. You too can join the conversation. If you'd like a higher quality audio you want to join from your computer, just download Mumble. It's a free voice over IP audio client. You can point that client to, vo to uh, mumble.jupiterbroadcasting.org, and you can join the conversation that way. Just ping me in the chat room. You can join the live chat room by going to jblive.tv or pointing your IRC client to irc.geekshed.net. Headline or ABC News headline homeless web developer hungry for success gets a fresh start thanks to a viral tweet homeless and hungry for success David Carez is now on the road to a new life thanks to a stranger to a thanks to a stranger's compassion 
Jasmine Schofield spotted the 26-year-old Cortez standing on the Silicon Bridge Street with a unique sign and handing out his resume. She shared his story and posted a copy of his resume on Twitter in a post that quickly became viral, capturing the attention of hundreds of potential employers. Casares is an unemployed web developer from Texas living in a park in Mountain View, California. He was wearing his finest tie and holding a sign that read, Homeless, Hungry for Success. Take a resume. Schofield posted, Today I saw this young homeless man asking for people to share his resume instead of asking for money. Please retweet so that we can help David out. I told myself, all I need is one person to take my resume and I can say, hey, I'm going to give an opportunity to this guy. The college grad told ABC News. Now, I want to stop here and just point something out. This is not some bum with no skills, right? This guy has a college degree. He is a web developer by trade. He has a formal education in web development, so he can make a lot of money with the right employer. My question is, why is it so difficult to get a job in this country? Why is it? Why does it take these kinds of extreme measures? What's the most difficult thing you've ever done to get a job? How do you get a job? If you got that answer, I'd like to hear it. one 855 450 It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at I know that if I saw this guy sitting in Grand Forks, North Dakota, and he wanted a job, by golly, I'd give it to him. I'd take a chance on him. Of course I would. And why wouldn't I? People that are willing to take this, that are willing to go extreme lengths to show that they can be valuable to your business deserve a chance. I believe that wholeheartedly. Now, whether or not I would allow myself to get into the point that I am homeless, that's a different story. The article goes on to say that the Texas A&M graduate uh, previously worked for General Motors before moving to Silicon Valley to pursue his tech startup dreams. He became homeless after, and I quote, spending all of his money attempting to start his own tech company. Now, again, I feel for the guy. Again, if he was sitting in my office and said he wanted an opportunity to prove himself, hey, we're redoing our website right now. By the way, if you have a logo suggestion, you can email that to logo at altaspeed.com. We're taking those logo suggestions. We want to revamp our logo. It's been 10 years. It's time for Altaspeed to get a facelift. So if you have any ideas, you can check that out. We'll have a link for you with more details in the show notes. You can get those show notes by going to podcast.asknoahshow.com. But this gives me pause. This gives me pause that he spent all of his money trying to start his own tech company. How does that happen exactly? First of all, if you're going to start a tech company, you might not move to Silicon Valley in California, particularly from Texas. It's not like there aren't people that need technical service in Texas, and there are sure a lot of people that need technical services somewhere between Texas and Silicon Valley in California. Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley in California probably has the, is probably the most heavily densely populated place of techies and tech startups and tech businesses and tech ideas. We used to have a saying in the business it's called ideas are a dime a dozen. If I had a dime for every time somebody walked into my office and said, I have the next best idea. I've got plenty of ideas of myself of how I can make a bunch of money. Okay. The reason that I don't do them, the reason that we don't pursue them is because I also have a realistic handle on the fact that this company, AltaSpeed Technologies, has to have focus and we have to do what serves the interest of our customers. That's not saying we don't ever go out on a venture, but it is saying that when we do go out on a venture, if we're going to take a chance, if we're going to spend some money, if we're going to put an investment somewhere, 
we do some basic market research. And basic mar- market research says unless you have literally the next big the next big idea, you probably don't want to start start pitching that in Silicon Valley, California. Why not start in Texas? Why not start in Nevada? Why not start in Oklahoma or New Mexico? Why not start in some place that is not as heavily dominated by technical types and technical startups? Why not get the business idea rolling? Why not get some customers, build some brand recognition, be a big fish in a small pond? And then if the idea proves to be successful in Texas, in New Mexico, in Las Vegas, in one of the bazillion states in between, uh, you know, Texas and California or somewhere in that general area. If it's successful there, then go ahead and move to California and then compete with all the big leagues in Silicon Valley. Let me know what you think. one 855 no That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. This is not how you get a job. It's what I said earlier in the program. You don't get a job by sending out resumes. You don't get a job by filling out things on monster.com. And I can tie three calls into this very point, right? We had the guy that's talking from Red Hat, and he's saying, I, I, I got a job because of what I was doing. And that's why Red Hat picked me up. Okay, then you got this guy from California, and it's, 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 again, it's what he's doing, not what he's saying. If he's sending resumes, he's handing resumes out, or filling out resumes, or filling out job applications on Monster.com, on Indeed.com, those are all great tools. Those are great things to, to keep your eye on so you know where a place is looking, but that's not how you get a job. And I can speak to this with a certain amount of authority. I've gone on a personal venture. Some of you may know I talked about it last week on the show. I'm doing some part-time uh, fill-in work for uh, KNOX, another radio station in Grand Forks. And um, I didn't get that position by filling out applications on Monster.com or Indeed.com. I didn't get, I mean, I uh, to be fair, I didn't get the job by standing on a bridge holding up a sign either. But I got the job by showing up and making myself valuable. And saying, I can add more to this convert. I can add more value to this company than you'll ever be able to pay me. And when you do that, when you show up at a company and you provide more value than, than they have to pay you, they want to keep you there. That's how that works. There isn't a person here at Alta Speed Technologies that we pay that we don't take in more money for that person's existence than we pay them. And it has to be that way if we are to remain profitable. Now, that's not entirely true. There are a couple of people that do some administrative things or help me out, uh, you know, and, and directly assist. But those are luxuries. The people that actually have guaranteed job securities, uh, those people take in more money than they cost. To that point, my personal assistant is the first thing that comes to mind. Personal assistant, she doesn't bring in any money. I've talked about this before, but we pay her. She'd also be the first one to go if we ever had to cut somebody because she doesn't bring in any money because she's not that valuable. From a money standpoint, I'm not talking about her humanity, obviously. One eight fifty five four fifty no. It's eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Again, you can join our chat room irc.geekshed.net, or you can join the mumble room mumble.jupiterbroadcasting.org. Headline: GPD Pocket Two Crowdfunding Campaign Goes Live. The GP, GPD Pocket Two Crowdfunding Campaign is now live on Indiegogo. It has already smashed through its one hundred thousand dollar goal in less than twelve hours. It seems that the demand for the seven inch tablet is just as high as last year's model despite a moderately higher price tag. We spotlighted the GPD-2 a few weeks back, noting that the second-gen model has a much faster processor, a redesigned keyboard, a rather controversial no-pointer nub, and there's an optical pointer above the keyboard instead. 
JPD is not selling a model pre-installed with Ubuntu this time, but they give... But given the relatively poor reception of their Linux model received last year, it's perhaps easy to understand why. Nevertheless, a passionate Linux community who was built up around the original GPD pocket, which now works much better with Linux distros like Ubuntu, thanks to the improved hardware support in the latest Linux kernel, and the community support will no doubt ensure that this model is knitted with a capable community-based Linux distro as well. You can see a comparison of the GPD Pocket and GPD Pocket 2 in this video. We'll have that video linked for you in the show notes. Although the lack of the HDMI port is annoying, you can connect the GTP Pocket 2 to an external monitor using a USB-C to HDMI adapter. The GPD Pocket 2 is not cheap. The base model runs roughly the same price as a new Microsoft Surface Go, albeit without the keyboard. On the flip side, it does offer comparable specs to the recent Microsoft Surface Pros. The terrifically high-resolution touchscreen and unibody magnesium case, just like the Surface Pro and the Apple MacBook, does offer some food for thought. The 4-gigabyte model costs, here it is, $500 rather, $29 as part of the crowdfunding campaign, and the 8-gigabyte model costs $599. The apparent MSRP will be $770 and $840, respectively. In other words, that will be $770 for the 4-gigabyte model, and the retail price on the 8-gigabyte model will go for $840. The 7-inch form factor doesn't put you off, uh, and then the, the author goes on to talk about how he doesn't prefer the 7-inch form factor. Truth be told, I, I really like small computers. I'd be interested in, to hear what you guys think. Do you, would you use a computer that doesn't ship specifically with Linux? Would you, ship a, would you use a machine that didn't have Linux pre-installed or didn't even officially support Linux? Let me know. one 855 450 Noah 855-450-6624. Of course, you can email us live at com. I didn't think that their previous version got poor reception. I think it got adequate criticism for advertising that something was going to ship and work with Linux, and it didn't. I would have bought one. I've been I, I've I've gone on the record since long before GPD Pocket was a dirty thought in the inventor's mind that I like small computers. I like portable machines. I like things that I'm able to to use. And when when the GPD Pocket came out, I looked at it and I looked at some of the reviews that came out, and I, I struggled to spend that much money to buy something that didn't work out of the box properly with Linux. And I can understand why they might decide to sell this as a Windows thing instead of a instead of a instead of a Linux thing. I guess I kind of get that. Because had they done that the first time around, the bar wouldn't have been as high. But when I'm going to pay for something, especially if I'm going to pay for something and I expect it to work out of the box with Linux, then it it better work with Linux out of the box. And if it doesn't, then we have a problem. I'm still interested to see where this goes, because like the article points out, there has been a very vibrant community that's popped up around the GPD pocket. In fact, there's a there's a vibrant community that's popped, popped up around the Microsoft Surface. There's pretty much no hardware that there isn't some group of Linux users that really wants to get it to work. And I think that's part of what makes Linux such a fantastic operating system, right? One of the things I think that is fundamentally lacking in the Windows world and in the Mac OS world is you don't get as much of a say in hardware. Windows significantly more than Mac OS, obviously. But if you want a, you know, I'll take Mac's an easier one to pick on. It doesn't matter what you want in a Mac computer. If you want a traditional USB port today, you're, you're totally hosed. 
Apple will decide that for you. Apple will decide if you want a, a, a full functioning USB port. I think in the next five to 10 years, you're not even going to be able to buy a traditional desktop slash laptop. I think they're going to pare it down to something a lot like the iPad because I think that's what's in Apple's best interest. But I don't think, but when it comes to Linux, you get to choose. If you want to run that on Apple hardware, well, there's a group of people doing that. If you want to run it on a Microsoft Surface, well, there's a group of people doing that. If you want to run it on Lenovo, there's people at Lenovo that are doing that. And now if you want a small pocket computer, well, guess what? There's a group of people making sure your operating system, your way of doing things, your software platform, your software repository, all of those things are going to be available and working on this small pocket computer. And I guarantee to you. I guarantee you. In fact, I'd make you a bet the GPD Pocket 2 works better out of the box with Linux than the GDP Pocket 1 because they probably have, they've established a brand recognition and a following and there are already people that are going to be working on this stuff. So to a certain degree, I think it's an oversight on their, on their uh, part not to offer the GPD Pocket 2 with Linux. Why not reach out to the Linux community and just say, hey guys, we didn't get the reception we wanted, we got the reception we deserve. We didn't get the reception we wanted on Linux. How can we change that? You know how many people would reach out and say, hey, I know exactly what the problem is and exactly how to fix that. You know how many developers would say, hey, I fixed it on the GDP Pocket 1. Here's what you need to do. Maybe send a couple of those devices out to those developers, the people that, that did it on the GDP Pocket 1, GPD Pocket 1, and say, hey, can you get this to work on the GPD Pocket 2? Why not give that a shot? I think they're missing the ball here. I think they're missing a, a really great opportunity to sell a really fantastic product. Because the thing is, desktop users are, are we are coming to an impasse. The smartphone, smart tablet, smart world that we live in demands that our technology is more and more portable. It demands and society expects us not to have bulky technology. It is socially inappropriate to show up at a sporting game with a laptop. I know because I'm the guy that shows up to a sporting game at a laptop. To all of those that are making fun of me, don't invite me to a sporting game. I will show up with my laptop, okay? You know, it's kind of one of those here's your sign things. I don't, I don't like sports. I don't care about sports. But it's socially unacceptable to show up to a sporting game with a laptop. It's socially acceptable, however, to pull your phone out every which way you are. It doesn't matter where you are. You can be out with dinner. You can be at a formal dinner. The president of the United States can be speaking to you and you can be a reporter and it's perfectly acceptable for you to stand there in front of your smartphone with your head buried in it. I've seen that firsthand. Society expects technology to get smaller. And those of us that want a traditional desktop-like experience on our computer systems, even if those computer systems are small, are few and far between. Most people are happy with iOS. Most people are happy with Android. I understand that that upsets a lot of you Linux users out there. It upsets me. I prefer a desktop working environment. But this is the world we live in. And companies like the GPD Pocket, those are the companies that are making a solution for us because our technology can be as portable as an Android or an iOS or certainly more portable than a laptop Cer or, yeah, and, uh, and, and as portable as something like the Microsoft Surface, right? One of the reasons I was so interested in the Surface 1, we took this question last week. One of the reasons I was so interested in the Microsoft Surface 1 is because it allowed me to fundamentally do things I couldn't do with a traditional laptop. When you fly on an airplane, for example, they want all quote-unquote large electronics stored. It doesn't matter that my 13-inch laptop, my 13-inch my ThinkPad uh, X270 is exactly the same size as my Microsoft Surface. 
maybe a bit thicker, but overall the exact same size. That doesn't matter. What matters is, is that the FAA classifies my Microsoft Surface as a tablet and it classifies my X270 as a laptop. So 20 minutes of my one hour flight to Minneapolis are burned if I'm using my ThinkPad, but the, the, the Surface is absolutely no problem. And that's true on any flight domestically and a lot of flights internationally. So this is something that is, and, th 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 and that is just one. That is just one of many, many examples that we're going to start to see in society as computers in general. The traditional computer becomes antiquated and outdated, and it's for old fuddy-duddies, and the tablet and the phones become the new norm. So companies like this are fundamentally solving that problem, and I think we need to give them our support. I'd be interested to hear from you guys. If anybody orders the GPD Pocket 2, I know we got a review from a gentleman that ordered the GPD Pocket 1. If he ends up by ordering the second one, I'd love to hear from you. But if anybody else is out there and you're planning on ordering this or you have pre-ordered it, hit me up. You can go to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click on the contact form, and reach out to me. I'd love to get in contact with you. 1-855-450 notes 855-450-6624 the email live at asknoahshow.com you too can be a part of the program add your voice to the conversation we'd love to hear from you headline this comes to us from omg ubuntu uk government publishes list of ubuntu 1804 lts security tips the uk's national cyber security center as part of gchq has released a new report on how to improve the security of ubuntu 1804 lts the NCSC is a relatively new section of the UK government responsible for issuing security advice to the public business and private sector shareholders on how to avoid computer security threats. It's also responded for it's also responsible rather for coordinating the response to any major online security incidents or breaches. The NCSC is both prolific and prudent. It has previously issued advice on bettering security while using Chrome OS, Android, Microsoft Office 365, Windows 10, Google Docs and more. Now in the latest published advisory, the department focuses on Ubuntu 18.04 operating system released back in April of 2018. The guidance may be helpful to both regular home users as well as business users. The NCSC security guidance for 18.04 suggests taking the following steps, and here they are. Configure remote access via VPN. Improve passwords with PAM password quality with a pass, PAM password quality module. Set a maximum screen lockout time, disable user reporting and proprietary contest, etc. Configure UEFI for secure, for secure boot protection, enable live patch kernel updates without rebooting, only install snaps from the snap store, external interface protection, prevent execution of binary files from the home partition, and enable a firewall. Now, if you don't know anything about computers and you don't know anything about technology, that's a pretty good set of rules to follow. But I do take exception with a couple of these. First of all, configure remote access via VPN. Well, let's add a couple of stipulations to that. If you need remote access, configure remote access with VPN. But if you don't need remote access, do not configure remote access with VPN. Leave the firewall in place. Leave everything closed. Don't enable remote access to your machine unless there's absolutely a good reason to have it. Um, disable user reporting and popularity contest. Okay, first of all, I don't like the way they phrase that. Popularity contest? Come on, man. The user reporting is not... Up, it, that is not just for counting... You, that is one of the things that Canonical and other places do, but it is not just there to 
to to factor in for popularity. There's a ton of other very useful metrics, and we've covered that on the show. I got into a a a, a long debate on with a with a comment on YouTube with Canonical collecting and I quote too much data. Um, install snaps only from the Snap Store. Well, I have a problem with that. If you know the it should, that first of all, not everything in the Snap Store can be said is 110% safe. Okay. There are security vulnerabilities that happen all over the place. We covered a story a couple of weeks ago where there was a problem with the with the uh, a submission into the AUR. Now, I'm not saying that the AUR and the Snap Store are one and the same. They're not. The Snap Store is much more heavily moderated. But at the same time, we have there's no I object to the idea that there was one place on the internet where you can get software and it is somehow immune to uh, to, to threats. So that's a, that's somewhat silly advice. Secondly. There are plenty of places or plenty of things that are going to come about, especially if snaps are to be successful, where companies are going to host their own snaps or come up with their own snaps. And they may not want to use the official snap store. So I have a problem with that. External interface protection. What, are we supposed to put epoxy in all of our USB ports or something? You can't. If you have physical access to the box, there's no amount of security protocol that is going to prevent you from compromising the box, right? At the end of the day, I can just take the hard drive out of the box and leave. And all the best encryption in the world is eventually crackable if I have enough computer po computing power and time, and I have all the time in the world if I've taken the device and removed the device from, from, the, uh, from, the, from the secure area. So I'm not sure what that means. External interface protection... I don't think you can secure external interfaces unless you totally remove access, physical access from the box. But at that point, at that point, it's not, you're not, I mean, th then you, there's a balance there that has to be between usability of the box and security of the box. That's what we call that the security triangle, right? So all of the, the article goes on to say, all of these are sensible tips, but are any of these strictly necessary? Answer is no. As the report itself stresses, the NCSC's guidance of consistent recommendations should not be seen as a mandatory set of instructions and going no further thought. I don't even agree with what they have here entirely, but it's, it's not a bad thing to discuss. Ubuntu 18.04 LTS comes out of the box with a robust security and industry-grade security practices, regular Ubuntu security notices, and ongoing security updates. So once again, we have one more check in the box for Ubuntu being a more secure, we know it's a more stable operating system than its proprietary alternatives. So that should give some of the YouTube trolls something to latch onto this week, because I said it again, Ubuntu is a more secure operating system. Linux is a more secure operating system. If you'd like your system to be more secure, more reliable, and more stable, then you should install Linux. And no, Microsoft Privilege Escalation doesn't fix that. James is calling from Idaho. Hey, James, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah, you wanted to know if people would like to buy a little with Prime, uh, you know, locked-in software. My answer to that is no. Um, I prefer open source all the way around. I don't like giving any money mandatory to any companies for any licenses whenever I can avoid it. Okay. Would you buy a computer that is pretty... That that, would, you buy, would you buy a computer that doesn't support Linux out of the box? When it buys a computer that does not support Linux? Yeah. They didn't no. have any official support for Linux out of the box. Would you buy that machine? Oh, no, because then they would have to have a locked-in software of some sort. Um, some sort of locked-in software. Like no, not necessarily. Apple I mean, you could install... I'm not saying you couldn't install Linux on it. I'm saying that out-of-the-box, it doesn't support Linux. So, for example, ThinkPads, they no, out-of-the-box, they don't... Go ahead. 
I don't particularly like those. I don't particularly like giving money to those companies that support the lockdown software. I prefer, if all possible, to get a box that is open or has gives me an option to say, yes, I want the open source solution to go that route versus uh, you're going to go all the way. We will like it until you pay the licensing and change it, wipe it, and cross your fingers it works. I hear what you're saying, but there are – the issue with that – here's the issue I have with that. The issue I have with that line of thinking is – that the vast majority of manufacturers don't support Linux out of the box, right? If you want a machine that officially supports Linux, you have essentially two choices. Well, you have basically two choices. There are a couple of other small players, but the big players in the in the officially supports Linux on the box are Dell and System76. Okay. Now I know you have companies like Zarezen, but in all reality, those are quite literally they take ThinkPads and then they put their sticker on them and they resell them. And if I'm wrong about that, then call in and tell me one eight fifty five four fifty no eight five five four five zero six six two four. And don't call in and tell me that System seventy six does the same thing with Clevo because that's not true. They do a lot more to those machines. But buying a machine with an officially supported Linux out of the box sticker is a difficult thing to do, and you 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 severely limit your options. So the the, the thing I was just talking about. Earlier in the hour, when I said that Linux opens up doors for you, opens up options, those all start to go away if we mandate that that sticker on the box says that it supports Ubuntu. Now, I have, you know, I, I've, I've got, I've owned pretty much a computer from every manufacturer under the sun. And uh, I've kind of settled down on ThinkPads because they do work out of the box with Linux. Which is why I was so surprised when we got that call earlier in the hour where the guy was talking about how he was having trouble with multi-monitor on KDE. I got a ThinkPad sitting right in front of me right now. It's hooked up to two monitors. No problems at all. It's running KDE. So I'm not sure what is what, what where the issue there lies. But ThinkPad has been a fantastic machine to run out of the box. And if you have any questions about that, go visit the folks in Raleigh in uh, in, in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina at Red Hat. Because guess what their standard issue is? The X1 Carbon. Every employee that works at Red Hat gets an X1 Carbon, a ThinkPad. And if Red Hat is willing to base their multi-billion dollar, that's billion with a B, four billion dollar company, if they're willing to risk their success on a machine that doesn't officially support Linux out of the box, and by the way, they ain't running Windows on those ThinkPads, right? They're running Red Hat or Fedora. Now, they'll let you run whatever distro you want, but the distro that it comes with when they hand you the company-issued ThinkPad, I know because I asked, is Red Hat Enterprise. And that Red Hat, Red Hat Enterprise Linux is running on a ThinkPad that didn't come with a sticker that supported Linux. So that's where I take issue with the with the with the uh, super hard line of well, it absolutely has to support Linux out of the box or we can't use it. JJ4884 in the chat room says Project Sputnik at Dell. Yeah, exactly. Dell has been Dell in the past couple of years has made some interesting strides because not only does this Project Sputnik which is the the effectively the developer edition of the XPS. Not only does that support Linux, but basically all for all but like two models of Dell computers that ship ship with hardware hardware enablement for Linux. So they officially support it out of the box on almost every machine. And the machines that we're running here in the Asnoa Studio, those are all Dell Optiplexes. And I knew when I bought those machines that they were going to work in a studio grade environment 100% of the time, and they were going to work out of the box with Linux. And I knew that before I ever bought them because we worked with Dell for a long time. 
and they didn't come with a sticker, by the way, that said that they worked with Linux. This is before that I, I buy, I tend to buy older hardware because I don't like paying for brand new hardware because I'm cheap. And frankly, I can get the job done with cheaper hardware. So it makes sense from a business standpoint. But they didn't come with stickers that said they support Ubuntu. I just knew that they would. Couple minutes left in the hour, one 450 no it's 855 It's not too late to make your voice heard and become a part of the conversation. If you'd like to, you can email us live at asknoahshow.com. This week, I spent some time at another radio station, KNOX. That's going to happen again next week. Sound, tentative schedule is I'm going to be there. Um, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm leaving the end of this week. I'm going to actually, I'm heading out on a super secret project. Uh, that is a Linux related super secret project and we'll have more details for you hopefully next week on Tuesday. Uh, one of the other things I'm going to do while I'm out, uh, on my secret project is I'm going to be meeting with the head of Southeast Linux Fest. They have offered me a position as the head of media for Southeast Linux Fest. And so I'm going to sit down with those guys and I'm going to hash out a couple of how I want to run uh, Southeast Linux Fest the next year. I want it to become the head for remote people. I want it to be the event that people can attend from anywhere in the world, the, people, the place that people can participate. Because I think Linux Fests are one of the coolest things that you can do to get involved with the community. And I think they're some of the most under-attended events because I think that there's a lot of people that are very valuable assets in the community and they don't have the money to travel and get there. And maybe we can do something about that on the Ask Noah Show to help some folks out. One way or another, though, uh, I want. I need to sit down. I need to plan with those guys. And while I'm out there, I'm going to see if I can get Jeremy Sands, the, the head of Southeast Linux, to sit down for an interview and share the story of how Southeast Linux Fest came to be. If you attended Southeast Linux Fest this year, then you heard that story right before dinner, I might add. But you heard the story about how it was not, it was an uphill battle and how nobody wanted Southeast Linux Fest to be a thing, how nobody wanted them to succeed. How there were other Linux Fests on the coasts that were already occurring and splitting up sponsor money, splitting up attendees, and splitting up speakers would fundamentally be bad for them. So they intentionally tried to, they, they, they didn't do any favors, I'll just leave it at that. And out of all of that, how a bunch of Linux users came together and used the technology that they had and the budget that they didn't have to form solutions and create one of the largest, largest attended Linux fests in the country. Certainly the most passionate. I think it's a really cool story. And as, as Jeremy talked about that, and as he went into the description of, of, of what to do if you're passionate about Linux and the value of your local Linux user group, as he went on to talk about all of those things, I started to think, what could I do to get more involved in Linux in Grand Forks? And that very day, I reached out to another gentleman that was attending there that was from Grand Forks, North Dakota, and I said, we need to do something. We need to start something in the Grand Forks area. We need to get people involved. We need to get people involved in this, in, in this community because when I, do, when I do remote events, we did one for our one-year anniversary just down in Minneapolis. That's just four hours away. And we packed a room full of, full of Linux enthusiasts. And, uh, and that was kind of a one-off thing, right? So what could people do on a more consistent basis? So we're going to bring Jeremy on the program. We're going to talk to him. We're going to find out. We're going to hear that story. And then we're going to find out what we can do in our own respective communities to bring Linux to the forefront and enable those who want to be a part of the Linux community. 
Hey guys, did you know this show is available as a downloadable podcast? That's right. To get the latest episode, download visit podcast.asknoahshow.com. There you'll find not only links and references to this episode, but all of the past episodes as well. You can get the latest by following us on Twitter at AskNoahShow. The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. Huge thanks to Vox Telesis for providing our phone systems. Our producer, Ben. Our call screener, Sarah. This hour of the show may be over, but we've got plenty of more content for you on our website. You can visit that 24-7, asknoahshow.com. Asknoahshow.com.